all this excitement, I can't remember whether I fired five rounds or six. Do you feel lucky, punk? Well, do ya? Hey, that was 1968, Dirty Harry and Clint Eastwood with the 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the whole world. City streets and the quiet town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. Dr. Ron is a nationally renowned forensic criminologist who leads the nation's finest forensic death investigations team. Your host, Dr. Ron Martinelli, will lead this investigation. Well, here on a thread of evidence today to talk about 44 Magnums and all sorts of ballistics and firearms and the facts and the fallacies about ballistics and firearms is one of my favorite experts from our forensic death investigations team, Lance Martini. And we join you today from somewhere in Germany on the Rhine River, where Dr. Ron and some of the members of our forensic death investigations team are cruising down the Rhine on a well-earned vacation. How you doing, Lance? Just fine, Doc. And yourself? <laughs> I'm doing great. So, you know, it's always interesting when we as professionals watch television and we see movies such as Dirty Harry and they've got firearms and they're doing all sorts of stuff with firearms. Cops are shooting locks and chains uh, and doors open and people are getting blown back by the concussion of the 44 Magnum. And so I thought we'd just kind of have a fun day today because we're on vacation and have you discuss with us all the facts and the fantasies and fallacies about firearms. Uh, absolutely. I'm glad to be here and glad to talk about it. Well, you know, Lance is one of only uh, 70 or so ballistic scientists that there are in the United States, and that's why we're lucky to have him on our team. And, uh, of course, Lance is our go-to guy for all of our shootings, which is about probably 90% of the work that we do together. Right, Lance? Yes, it is. And so, who better to come in and fill us in and pop some bubbles? Okay, why don't we start right out? Let, let's just kind of talk about the science of ballistics. And Lance, why don't you talk about what that science really entails? Well, actually, uh, Doc, it's uh, a misconception as perceived by the general public. The science of ballistics is actually a traditional scientific discipline. It's divided into external ballistics, the motion of a body, uh, and when it relates to firearms, you're talking about internal ballistics, that is the dynamics that happen uh, upon discharge of a cartridge within a firearm, or a cannon, or some explosive force. And then there is terminal ballistics, which is the uh, dynamics associated with the impact of a projectile. Well, you know, I'm glad that you explained that beginning because I would probably tell you that 98% of our uh, our listeners, uh, including our law enforcement listeners, don't have any idea about the different uh, differences 
of uh, the ballistic uh, science. So I think that's pretty interesting. Hey, can we start off with the first one that I want to talk about? Uh, watching a movie the other night, and a cop needs to get into a uh, a gate where a bad guy had run away, and the bad guy jumps over the fence, and the cop can't do it because uh, he's a little bit heavy, and so he pulls out his nine uh, millimeter uh, semi-automatic pistol, and he fires one round, and that lock just explodes and that gate he just pushes that gate wide open what about that well it might happen it might not uh, depending on the quality of the lock as well as the accuracy of the shooter but there is a an object which is not considered in the movies what happens to that bullet after it hits the lock ricochet Ricochet, absolutely. And people don't respond well to ricochets as well as they don't respond well to bullets. (laughs) The the skin is not a bullet stopper, okay? (laughs) Well, not by choice. (laughs) So let's talk, okay, and so we get it. He can can shoot that lock. He might be able to blow that lock open. Uh, But if he's standing in front of the lock, which most all the cops do in the movies, uh, more likely than not, he stands a pretty good chance of maybe getting hit. Absolutely, Doc. How about a chain, Lance? He's just shooting the link off of that chain. Well, again, first of all, you have to hit the chain. You have to hit the chain in such a fashion that you're striking a weak point in the chain. Otherwise, all you're going to do is bend it. But again, you have the same problem. If you do hit it, if you do hit hit it in the right spot, and the bullet impacts with that type of velocity, where are the bullet fragments going? Chances are you're going to experience sudden impact of a different nature. Well, that's really interesting that you're saying that because a few years ago I was asked by a uh, movie company that was sort of like Mythbusters. It wasn't Mythbusters, but they had an actual case where a guy uh, had a flat tire and he managed to remove four out of the five lug nuts on his tire rim, which was a a chrome tire rim, uh, on his truck, couldn't get the last one off, so he went into his car and he got his shotgun and loaded it with number four shot pellets and then said, well, I think if I shoot this lug nut, I might be able to get it to loosen up. Whereupon he did so, standing somewhat in front of the rim, and he ended up basically blowing some holes in his leg, because both legs, because it ricocheted right off of the lug nut and right onto our guy. And I had to reproduce that. And I'll tell you what, the way I did it, I built an entire sandbag wall around uh, the, the rim. You know, they brought me a tire, actually brought me a whole differential and a rim and a tire. And I had, had the shotgun, had the number four shot, and I got behind a plexiglass <laughs> bullet resistant window and did the same thing with a mannequin and achieved exactly the same results. <laughs> oh, and I can't believe that, Doc. Uh, unfortunately, one aspect that the movies, TV, Hollywood in general, uh, tend to forget is what happens to that bullet after the initial impact. Or many bullets in the case of a number four shot. Oh, absolutely. They have to go somewhere. They have to do something. 
And by the way, I might add, uh, we didn't do anything to that lug, even though I hit it dead on. And uh, if anything, it probably tightened it. Oh, yeah, certainly a possibility. <laughs> so uh, go ahead. You, 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 oh, when you're, th- you're talking about shooting things like locks and chains, um, there is uh, some of our, our uh, SWAT entry teams do have door breaching, lock breaching weapons. That's right. And when I was uh, working on a team, I was a breacher, and uh, we used a variety of, of different types of ammunition to breach, uh, to breach doors. And none of them were handguns. None of them. I used a 12-gauge shotgun. 12-gauge shotgun, a solid single projectile, a slug, uh, typically made of some composite material, which would fracture upon uh, impact. Correct, and would not give me the splay. Correct. And the firearm was modified such that you had a standoff on the end of the barrel, the end of the muzzle, such that you had... Uh, escape ports for the impacting projectile, the slug, to exit out the sides. Exactly. And not back into the uh, shooter. Exactly. I'm glad you pointed that out. So, hey, you know what? We're on the water, okay, on the beautiful uh, scenic uh, river cruise ship, and uh, we're going about four knots an hour, I think, right now. So, let's talk about shooting underwater. So we see quite a few movies where guys are shooting other guys underwater or shooting things underwater. So how does the introduction of water as our shooting environment affect uh, the ballistics? Uh, Significantly, Doc. Uh, And it's very specific in terms of what type of firearm, the type of ammunition you're using, Uh, specifically the projectile design, hollow point versus a full metal jacket, round nose versus a spitz or a sharp point bullet, velocity of the bullet. These all have significant impacts as to the performance of that projectile when fired underwater. So let's say, like in a movie that I saw recently, we have a detective and a bad guy that have been fighting on top of a a dock. They both go under the water. Of course, the water's perfectly clear, which is beautiful. It's probably in a Hollywood swimming pool somewhere. And the detective pulls out a gun, and from a distance of about 8 to 10 feet away, he fires on the suspect who's in the water with a knife and kills this guy. So how does that work or how does that not work? What's the truth? What's the fallacy behind that? All right. Well, you've identified the use of a handgun, number one. Semi-automatic pistol. A law enforcement related, so it's probably either 9mm, 40 caliber, or 45 caliber. Uh, let's pick something in between. Let's say 40, uh, 40 caliber, 40 Smith & Wesson. And because it's a law enforcement application, it's probably a jacketed hollow point, hollow cavity type bullet. I would think so. That's what I used to carry. To be rapidly expanding. All right. Now, you pull the gun out, pull the trigger after pointing it at your assailant. And what happens as the bullet immediately exits the barrel, you're probably talking about somewhere in the neighborhood of 900 to 1100 feet per second depending on the weight of the bullet, being a hollow cavity bullet, it's designed to expand. 
So what happens when it hits the greater density water as opposed to air and what you'd normally fire it? The bullet begins to immediately expand. And typically from experience, having done this in the laboratory many times, that bullet will probably, probably go somewhere between four and six feet before it runs out of velocity and falls uselessly, in this case, to the bottom of the river. Uh-oh. Well, my guy was back on the movie. My guy was back at least another four feet from that. So what we should have seen in the movie is, <laughs> is the bullet going out, expanding, and dropping in front of the bad guy. And let's give him the benefit of the doubt, seeing he's using, using a full-jacketed bullet, non-expanding type. Okay, that might go an additional two, maybe three feet. But again, if you're looking at a total of nine feet before it comes to zero velocity, even if he hits his assailant, nothing happens. So basically, the t-shirt stops the bullet, and it just drops to the sea floor. Absolutely. And I'm going to throw in another factor. That's assuming he's using a firearm, a semi-automatic firearm, that will function underwater. Some do, some do not. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. So give me an example of one that might work underwater. I, uh, typically, uh, Glock firearms uh, will function underwater. Uh, some calibers better than other calibers. And, in fact, Glock even offers a firing pin for use underwater so that the greater density of the water doesn't uh, impede its forward momentum so that the discharge of the cartridge occurs when the firing pin strikes the primer. Well, you know, Lance, I know that you're not only a ballistic scientist, but you actually started out uh, in the gunsmithing uh, business and uh, doing armor work and things like that. So my question to you is, how do, and, and we know about the Glocks, which is my personal weapon of choice, uh, but there are some guns that don't take to water well at all. Not at all. So what does that mean when, they, when I say they don't take to water at all? Uh, some of your uh, particularly older, older design semi-automatic firearms with thin barrels, uh, when fired underwater, the barrel will bulge. It will bulge. It will bulge due to the increase of pressure. Remember, by design, uh, the function of a semi-automatic firearm is such that when the primer is, uh, is struck by the firing pin, creates a small explosion. This is because primers contain uh, a shock-sensitive compound. It literally does explode. But that explosion then ignites the gunpowder contained within the cartridge case. Now, this is not an explosion. It's an extremely rapid burning rate, which, when you're talking about microseconds, would appear to be an explosion, but it's not. And uh, when you're looking at the physics, that becomes very important. But to keep things brief, that rapid burning of the gunpowder creates a high-pressure gas environment which, by design, pushes on the base of the bullet and then down and out the barrel. Typically, uh, let's say 9mm, a very common cartridge, you're talking about uh, pressures in the neighborhood of 20-25,000 pounds per square inch. And that's typical for a handgun cartridge. Others are a little higher, some are a little lower. But this pressure, as it pushes against the base of the bullet, 
by design, all that pressure is contained within the chamber of the firearm, the barrel of the firearm, the surrounding mechanism. Well, once you introduce water into the barrel, that bullet has to push the water out. The forward progress of that bullet is slowed down. What that happens to the burning curve of the gunpowder is your pressure spikes. It goes up astronomically. So if the gun isn't very stoutly designed, uh, you can cause the, the barrel to bulge under pressure. Uh, it could cause uh, aspects of the uh, chamber to rupture, to actually uh, explode under the pr increased pressure. It depends specifically on the type of firearm you're dealing with. Well, I'll tell you what, I can just guarantee you that there are no movie producers that understand that dynamic. And you know what? For some of our listeners that might be new to firearms, I'm going to give you a test question to see how you do. Can you explain the cycle of operation for a semi-automatic pistol? Oh, absolutely. Now, the cycle of operation is inherent to all firearms. Some firearms, it's, it occurs manually. Some firearms, such as a semi-automatic or a fully automatic firearm, it occurs in a particular sequence all mechanically as a result of the cartridge discharge. But effectively, you're looking at, and we'll start with pull of the trigger. It, that's where I'd like you to begin. Pull all of right. the trigger. So we're assuming a loaded firearm. A cartridge is in the chamber, it's in battery, we're ready to go. The trigger is pulled, the hammer uh, or striker moves forward, ignites the, uh, strikes the primer, ignites the gunpowder, the sequence begins. So we have discharge. When the pressure is developing uh, and sends the bullet down and out the barrel, we have unlocking of the mechanism. So that's a mechanical function. As the mechanism unlocks, it begins to extract pull out of the chamber the expanded cartridge case. As it extracts uh, the cartridge case out of the chamber, the slide assembly or bolt assembly moves to the rear, continues to pull the cartridge case out of the chamber until the point in time when the base of the cartridge case strikes the ejector. At this point, the ejector striking the base ejects the cartridge case or throws the cartridge case out of the firearm. Now simultaneously while the slide was moving to the rear and extracting and ejecting the cartridge case it's also compressing the recoil spring. Now once the cartridge case has been ejected this uh, the slide or again the bolt assembly has compressed the spring and ex expended all of its rearward momentum. Now the now expanding uh, recoil spring forces the slide forward. As the slide moves forward, it strips a cartridge out of the magazine, and from the magazine, it feeds the cartridge into the chamber. Chambers fully chambers as the cartridge aligns with the chamber. Uh, the assembly moves forward and locks the mechanism. And while all this is happening simultaneously, and which I have not mentioned, but just prior to this event, it also 
cocks or re-engages the hammer or the striker, whatever design a firearm you're depending, uh, using. So all this is happening almost simultaneously, but it does occur. And once the slide has gone fully forward, the mechanism is locked into place in the battery, the hammer has been recocked. All the shooter has to do is release the trigger, pull the trigger again. And, and it starts all over again. And it starts all over again. Well, I'm going to give you an A-plus on that, Lance. And you're listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli and ballistic scientist and firearms expert Lance Martini on a thread of evidence. I'm Dr. Ron Martinelli. And I'm Linda Martinelli. As former law enforcement officers, we know that your life and the lives of those you love and work with can change in an instant when you encounter an active shooter. Unfortunately, in today's world of uncertainty, encountering an armed active shooter can have deadly consequences. That's why the key to survival is training and preparedness. And that's why we want to invite our listeners to seriously consider taking our response to active shooter training course. Violence can happen to you anytime and anywhere and when you least expect it. Having a response and survival plan and engaging it can be the difference between life and death for you or a family member. Our response to active shooter courses are customized for the corporate, school, church, restaurant, and small business environment at a reasonable budget that fits your needs. So don't put this life-saving training off because you don't think it will ever happen to you. We call those people victims. Our response to active shooter instructors are all nationally renowned tactical law enforcement experts who will guide you through the life-saving protocols you'll need to survive an active shooter event. So be a victor, not a victim. Go to responsetoactiveshooter.com to learn more today. Remember, that's all one word, responsetoactiveshooter.com, and be safe out there. You're listening to A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud with Dr. Ron Martinelli and ballistic scientist and firearms expert Lance Martini. Lance, how many times have you heard a detective say, send the bullet down to ballistics? Oh, Doc. (laughs) Uh, Thanks to the media, uh, thanks to Hollywood, actually, and thanks to many officers. Uh, as a scientist, when you say ballistics, I think of the traditional disciplines. Uh, truly what we do in the laboratory when we look at a bullet or a cartridge case and we compare it to a firearm, that is firearms identification. That is not ballistics. But because of the misuse uh, generally within the public, uh, we, we all know what they're talking about. So if somebody says, you know, I've got a bullet for ballistics, or I want you to take a look at this and tell me what the ballistics are, we know what they're talking about. Right, Well, you, and that's why one of the reasons we use you, because you've got the lab, okay? And so when I tell you, you know, I don't say send the bullet to ballistics. I call you up and I say, hey, Lance, this is what I got and this is what I need. <laughs> Absolutely, Doc. And just along those same lines, too. Uh, and this is typical with Hollywood. They have to. They have to keep their audience's attention up, their interest up. Is what we do in the laboratory, you send me a bullet to compare to a firearm, 
I do my testing, I do the microscopic exam. That might go as quick as four hours. It could be four days on a single bullet. Each case uh, is unique unto itself. Now, you certainly can't do that on a TV show that lasts 30 minutes. So consequently, things certainly get speeded up and as far as the general public is concerned, we can work our miracles in fractions of a second oftentimes. So let's just kind of talk about that. Let's talk about uh, someone sending you a bullet for comparison. Can you go through some of the, the things that you look at uh, on the bullet when you put it under the microscope to do comparative analysis? Oh, absolutely. Uh, there's several foundational aspects we need to be aware of. Uh, first of all, when we are submitted evidence for examination, let's say we have an uh, investigator send us uh, some bullets from a victim that were recovered at autopsy. Uh, we have a firearm that is suspective of having fired uh, these bullets. And, and keep in mind also, uh, another misnomer is what we are looking at in terms of bullets are actually bullets. That's the technical name, the correct name. Uh, typically though, when we testify, when we write reports, we describe them as missiles or as projectiles because through misuse, people often refer to a bullet as an entire cartridge, the loaded assembly. The projectile, the cartridge case, the gunpowder, uh, all the constituents that make up a live cartridge. They call that a bullet. It's incorrect. But again, we know what they're talking about. So when we testify, we tend to be very specific so there's no confusion. And you know, that's really challenging too because some uh, barrels of firearms are more difficult in the identification uh, than others, correct? Oh, absolutely. I know you and I worked uh, that very famous uh, Brillo shooting case, Officer Brillo, uh, a few years ago in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, where we had uh, two suspects. We had 13 shooters, including Officer Brillo, and we had scores of rounds fired. I think it was about 139 rounds fired. One suspect ended up with 26 rounds, and another suspect ended up with 25 rounds. And, you know, of course, uh, they sent uh, those uh, bullets away uh, for comparison. And I think the cartridges, Lance, how did that work out for them because well, of the Glocks that were used? Well, we've got two aspects here in terms of uh, compar our comparative work. It's the projectiles as well as the cartridge cases. And they're totally separate. They're, they're very different. They're, it's a very similar type of side-by-side -side examination, but with the Glocks, because of their rifling characteristics and the quality of the rifling, it's very difficult. Uh, we have class characteristics when it comes to projectiles. Uh, we have the spirals, the flutes in the barrel of a firearm. Typically in American firearms, uh, some European firearms, that is referred to as cut rifling, uh, button rifling. There's many different forms, but it's, it's very pronounced in that for that particular firearm or model series of firearms, we have a number of lands and grooves. The grooves which are cut into the uh, barrel and the lands that stick up, somewhat like a barber pole, but stretched out much further. So we have hills and valleys, 
depressions, rises, lands and grooves. So the number of those, they rotate either right or left, and that's what gives the bullet as it passes down the barrel the gyroscopic stability, very much like a thrown football. And that's one of the differences in accuracy and distance between a rifle and a revolver or a pistol. Actually not. Oh, Doc. Uh-oh. Uh, yes. <laughs> and I'm glad you bring that up. So, Lynch, just to help our listeners, uh, I'm a forensic investigator. I'm working an officer-involved shooting. And there are, let's say there are two or three officers that are involved in this shooting, and the suspect is shot, but we can't determine uh, at this point, without the use of someone like you, uh, who fired a fatal bullet. Now, we have the autopsy report, and we have the recovery of bullets at time of autopsy. So we gather those bullets and we send them to you. Take it from there. All right, Doc. And for simplicity purposes, we'll assume uh, different types of firearms. That's good. And why that makes it simpler for somebody like me, generally, is that starting with the bullets, we have what we look at and call class characteristics. These are characteristics common to a particular make and model of a firearm. Those characteristics, as they pertain to a projectile, a bullet if you may, are the number of lands and grooves, the hills and valleys that are cut into the barrel of a firearm that are engraved upon a bullet as it goes down and out the barrel. So we have the number of lands and grooves, we have the direction of twist. Is it a right hand twist? Do they rotate to the right? Do they rotate to the left? And then additionally, we have the ratio, the proportion of widths of those lands to the grooves. Uh, different firearm manufacturers may use a wider lands than grooves or the reverse. So these are all physical properties inherent to that particular series of firearm, that particular model of firearm. So all of those bullets are going to look the same from that particular gun as well as guns from the same model line. Now after test firing the firearm using similar or identical type of ammunition to duplicate the forces that the bullet, the projectile, was exposed to, we oftentimes will shoot into a water tank, we'll collect those bullets, uh, note the class characteristics, the caliber of the bullet, the weight of the bullet, the direction of the rifling, how many lands and grooves, the ratio of lands and grooves in terms of widths. Now we'll compare those to our unknown bullets that were recovered at autopsy. Now if we have bullets that match in terms of all the general rifling characteristics, the class characteristics, then we'll proceed further. We'll look at the micro striations present upon the bullets. Now these are in essence microscopic scratches that occur as the bullet travels down and out the barrel. And these are the result of small mechanical uh, defects in the barrel. Uh, oftentimes they're not visible uh, depending on the quality of the manufacturer. Some are easier to see than others, but we'll look at those microscopic uh, 
characteristics those striations and compare them bullet to bullet. You know, that's really fascinating and I've just been lucky a couple of times to be in your lab with you when you're using your comparative microscope and it's really fun to see that uh, because sometimes it's very striking when you do the comparisons and you line them up. Oh, absolutely. Uh, if, particularly if you have a firearm where it's got relatively rough, poor quality rifling, uh, and you're looking at that and you can see the striations and once you phase the bullets uh, you have excellent agreement as you go around the bullet. Now when we get to the point of sufficient correspondence we can state as a scientist that we have a high degree of probability that this known bullet that we fired from this gun is so similar to the unknown bullet that both of them were fired from the same firearm. So let's talk about casings because that's another part uh, of the equation. Absolutely, Doc. The process is generally the same. Again, using the actual gun, the suspect gun, we're using ammunition of a similar type uh, because there is some variation from manufacturer to manufacturer in terms of ammunition, hardness, uh, the pressures that are used, but the same mechanical machining operations that occur to the bolt or slide of a firearm, the firing pin, is it hemispherical in shape? Is it rectangular in shape? Uh, there are a number of mechanical aspects that leave their marks on the cartridge case as it is extracted and ejected out of the mechanism. And it also helps if we do a good search warrant and we manage to recover ammunition of a similar type inside the suspect's house because we're going to use that ammunition as well. Uh, if we have sufficient quantities, we will. If we don't, we'll pull something out of our reference uh, collection and use that. So here's a question that I don't really know the answer for, and that is how many is a sufficient number of uh, test exemplars? It actually depends on the uh, quality of the firearm, the idiosyncrasies of the firearm. Uh, remember we're looking at in essence a unique event in terms of yeah the cycle of operation is similar but each firearm because it's machined slightly different and operates a little bit different because of tolerances you have plus and minus tolerances may mark differently. Also too you may have differences in hardness. Uh, typically when you're looking at US manufactured ammunition the hardness, the pressure levels are slightly different than that which comes from Europe or other areas of the, uh, the world. So w we have to understand what causes these difference. Typically to start with we'll fire four or five cartridges and we'll look at the marking characteristics. If we have enough to work with, we'll go from there. If not, then we'll fire more until we get to the point where we can't, cannot duplicate the same marking characteristics, which is probably a result of having a different firearm, or we need to look at it look at the marking characteristics even further, fire more ammo. Typically though you don't need to go over 10 
that will give you enough to work with for an experienced examiner to know what they're working with. You know, that's interesting. And you know, of course, on television and CSI, uh, the ballistic scientist is always able to identify cartridges and bullets. What's the truth or the fallacy behind that? Oh, I only wish. Uh, I, because of the quality of manufacture and the type of rifling, let's say we're talking about projectiles. Also, too, unlike the bullets that we see uh, on TV, which I would refer to as being pristine, uh, it doesn't always work that way. The bullets get damaged. Sometimes those fi fine microscopic markings are damaged, eliminated. Uh, sometimes the quality of manufacture, if we have a high quality firearm with a lot of polishing to the lanes and grooves, it doesn't mark well. It's a nice mirror surface and there's nothing microscopically for us to compare. Well, boy, I'll tell you what, I have got a host of questions for you when we come back on uh, A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud, and you're with Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist, and Lance Martini, ballistic scientist and firearms expert from our nationally renowned forensic death investigations team. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world, to unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. News blogs, informative podcasts, and entertaining videos. It's AmericaOutloud.com, where the conversation never ends. With 24-7 streaming on our free apps on both Android and Apple. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is Dr. Ron Martinelli forensic criminologist and host of A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. If you'd like to find out what forensic criminologists really do in the field and you're tired of the false narratives about law enforcement and want to unpack the cases that I've worked throughout the nation, then please pick up a copy of my new book, The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police, on sale right now at Amazon.com. That's the truth behind the Black Lives Matter movement and the war on police at Amazon.com. Tired of watching the same old, same old sporting events? Well, kick it up a notch and get ready, America, for something you've never seen before. It's the new generation of Western superstars. Shorty Gorham's American freestyle bullfighting. Who will win? The acrobatic, tough-as-nails Western superstar or the meanest half-ton fighting bulls on earth? This is one of the most extreme sports you'll ever see in an arena. This is hand-to-horn combat on a level playing field. Go to ShortyGorhamAFB.com or find them on Facebook. It's bullfighting time. You're listening to America Out Loud and a thread of evidence with forensic criminologist Dr. Ron Martinelli and firearms expert and ballistic scientist Lance Martini. Lance, you know, we hear the term recoil both professionally and on television. How does recoil affect what you do in your studies and analysis? It's a significant aspect in some of our work. Not all of it, but when it becomes a part of it, it's often a consideration 
one of those aspects, and it's important to keep in mind that we're simply dealing with physics. Not, nothing fancy, uh, and we can thank Mr. Isaac Newton from a long time ago, and his uh, equation that identified that for equal, for every equal action, I'm really messing up. <laughs> no, you're not. Hey, Lance, we hear the term recoil professionally and both on television. So how does the issue of recoil affect your analysis and determinations with respect to the science of ballistics? Well, Doc, uh, that's an interesting question in that anybody who has had the opportunity to fire particularly a handgun, but any firearm in general, has noticed that when they pull the trigger, the cartridge uh, detonates and sends the bullet down and out the barrel. In one direction, there is an equal and opposite force that is exerted on the firearm and therefore the shooter. And thanks to Sir Isaac Newton, who defined this phenomena in his, I believe it's his second law, that for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction. Again, we're dealing with physics. Now, when it comes to a shooting reconstruction, or even on a more simpler level, somebody who is interested in choosing a firearm, we have small caliber firearms, we have large caliber firearms. Generally, as the larger caliber firearm, and when I speak of caliber, in general, I'm speaking of the diameter of the bullet, the projectile that goes down and out the barrel. As the weight of the projectile increases, the amount of force, the recoil, also increases. Now, you can also increase the amount of recoil by increasing the speed of that projectile, the velocity of the bullet, as it travels down and out the barrel. So, as a combination of both mass, bullet weight, and velocity, you can generate recoil. And that's felt firsthand if you're holding a handgun in your hands or a rifle or shotgun against your shoulder. And I think a lot of us have felt that, if not all of us have felt that. Uh, absolutely. And again, if you've discharged a firearm. Now, if you're firing a handgun, let's say, your higher recoil firearms are harder to control in that you're on target, you pull the trigger, discharge the cartridge, the recoil forces the gun generally back and upwards. So for you to come back on target, reacquire your sights, takes a certain amount of time. The higher the recoil, the greater the recoil, the longer it takes to do that for an individual. Now, a trained individual can do that much quicker than an untrained individual, but the principle is still the same. So when we're talking about speed of firing, particularly with semi-automatic firearms, or even revolvers, recoil is an important aspect. You can fire uh, many firearms quite rapidly, but not accurately. You have to get back on target to maintain your accuracy. And just simply pulling the trigger uh, randomly without aiming isn't going to do you any good. A miss is a miss. Well, I'll tell you what. 
that is a great dovetail into my next series of questions because we're talking about recoil and I flash right back to Dirty Harry with the 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world. And if you remember the Dirty Harry series, every time he fired that gun, there was a huge noise, right? Huge explosion, which was actually very accurate. I mean, as far as what 44 Magnum sound like, but boy, when he fired that gun, his arms used to just jump up and he'd have control and he'd bring him back down but I remember all of that but let's talk about hitting a body with a 44 Magnum bullet because Dirty Harry Clint Eastwood used to knock people right through walls so fact or fallacy? A lot of fallacy <laughs> a lot of Hollywood there Doc uh, again going back to Sir Isaac Newton for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction if shooting somebody with a firearm would cause them to be thrown across the room, sometimes out of a window, you know, we have to be dramatic here, uh, the same amount of force would be applied to the shooter. So what you're saying is, if the guy was falling backwards that got struck, the guy that, shoot, that shot him would be falling backwards the opposite direction. Absolutely. Uh, a very way to investigate this for some of you who live in an environment where you can go out into the country is get yourself some sandbags, uh, something in the area of about 100 pounds, you know, body weight or even greater, and suspend it by a single rope from a branch or a support of some type. Make sure it's perfectly steel. Go ahead and stop, shoot it. Now, if the bullet stops within your sandbag body, all of the energy of that bullet is being expended within the bag. You might have to put a steel plate in there to make sure it doesn't go through the bag. And then you have to subtract energy in from energy out. But let's assume the bullet stops entirely within the bag. Uh, does that 100 pound body bag throw itself, tear itself off the rope, off the limb? No, it doesn't it will start to swing a little bit, a couple of inches maybe, and that's about it. Okay, well, thanks for clearing that up. But since we're talking about bullet impacts, and of course, this is all about the, the facts and fallacies of ballistics and firearms, let's talk about what we see on television all the time. And actually, Lance, you and I see you know every single week in all of these uh, shooting cases that we investigate, and that is bullets stopping vehicles and people shooting at vehicles, officers shooting at vehicles uh, to stop them. So can we take a gun, even a 44 Magnum, and can we stop a vehicle by shooting that vehicle with a high-powered uh, duty weapon, such as maybe 40 caliber, uh, 357, or 44 Magnum? Uh, as a general rule, no. And why not? Well, again, if we restrict ourselves to handguns, but even to a general degree, rifles also apply. You may damage the engine, but you would have to damage the engine sufficiently in extent so that it would immediately seize up, stop functioning. And you and I had a case in San Diego County a number of years ago. It was a self-defense homicide case, a criminal defense case, and 
the the man that was on his private property was shooting at uh, a large four by four who he represented was coming down his private road and trying to run him over and I believe he was shooting it with a two two three Bushmaster. Do you remember that case? Uh vaguely. It gets mixed in with a lot of All other right. cases. Well, I, I'll, I'll help you with this. Okay, uh, the case was Ortolomsky. And uh, these were people that were burglarizing his property, and he went out to go investigate it, and he brought his Bushmaster with him, and they started trying to run him down, and he fired at the tires, and he fired at the radiator, and he fired at the hood to try to stop the car like on television, and it didn't do any of those things except kill somebody that was inside the car, in the cab of that truck. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about shooting at tires, and shooting at radiators. When you're shooting at tires, when you're shooting at radiators, you're effectively punching holes. That's all you're doing. And depending on the bullet design and the caliber, some holes will be bigger than others. But in this particular case, if you're talking about 223 ammunition, 5.56 also, uh, you're not creating a big hole. You're talking about 22 caliber. Are there sometimes where like a two two three, like an AR fifteen, five you know, five five six, can that bullet upon occasion bounce off a tire? It can. Uh again, it depends on the angle, what tire design type of bullet. But if the bullet goes through, and typically it'll go through a sidewall as opposed to the tread. Oh, absolutely. Uh it creates it's let's say ball ammo, spitzer type ammo. Uh pointed nose high velocity, small caliber, punches a small hole going in and typically will punch a small hole going out. A lot of times the air in the tire won't even leak out for days. It may take a while. So we're not blowing up a tire, right? Absolutely not. And shooting into a radiator, that's not going to stop an engine. No, absolutely not. Alright, so let's talk about the next thing and that's bullets penetrating through glass and windshields. I want to separate those. So let's talk about bullets penetrating through glass like in a, in a building or, or, or a house. How uh, do bullets affect penetration through glass? Okay, first of all we need to start off with what type of glass. Exactly. Let's talk about those variables real quick. And if you're looking at typical window glass it will be either, and that's generally uh, identified as float glass, and that's because of the manufacturing method. Uh, you may have untempered float glass, you may have safety glass or tempered glass, uh, which is far more resistant to breakage, but, and when it does break, uh, and again we're talking about tempered glass, it will break up into these little cubes, often referred to as dicing. Now, Oftentimes, depending on the type of glass, we can tell what bullet struck first or where it struck first if we have multiple impacts in the glass. Uh, but still, as a bullet goes through glass, it's a very hard material. Uh, glass does terrible things to bullets. It breaks them up, it fragments them oftentimes, unless the bullet is specifically designed for penetration. And again, this is just typical float glass. 
if we're talking about windshield, it becomes even more complicated because we're talking about laminated glass. Your typical windshield has an outer, outer layer of glass, a plastic laminate sandwich layer in the middle, and then another layer of glass. And this is a very safe, it's designed for windshields to minimize glass injuries to somebody striking the windshield or an object coming through. Now, I was going to ask you a question. With regards to windshields, every time we see on television, the bullet always goes through the windshield. It always, you know, makes a big hole in the windshield. Are there times, depending on the angle, depending on the, uh, the type of bullet, the type of projectile, are there times where bullets can and, in fact, do bounce off of windshields? Absolutely, Doc. Um, in fact, this was a major problem in some of the uh, earlier days and w was one of the reasons for going to larger calibers for law enforcement, better bullet design, is a detective standing outside of a car uh, aiming at a suspect behind the wheel with his two-inch model uh, 36 Smith & Wesson, uh, firing 38 special ammunition, 158 grain uh, round nose, uh, stop or I'll scratch your windshield, basically is what it equated to. The bullets oftentimes would not penetrate the glass, and sometimes they'd even bounce off without cre uh, going through. And you know, these are some of the reasons, and Lance, you and I have worked together as a team and done a number of these shootings where officers and civilians are shooting uh, either suspects or other civilians in cars. And uh, we've just seen uh, all sorts of different things with the way that, you know, bullets penetrate or don't penetrate or ricochet off of things. Uh, and it's, it's an absolute uh, interesting science. You know, briefly you had mentioned that sometimes you can tell which bullets strike a window surface first, such as a windshield. And isn't that because of the, the breakage of the glass or the or the scratching or the way that the spider webbing of the glass and how they intersect or how does that exactly work? Because that's, that's your thing, that's not my thing. Well, that typically works with float glass. Okay. Um, and there's a difference between tempered and untempered glass. Uh, you have to be careful with windshields uh, because there is a phenomenon referred to as thermal cracking. And you can, I've been on shooting scenes, uh, officer-involved shooting, where an officer was ambushed, and we get there uh, early in the evening, we have bullet holes through a windshield, uh, and we documented immediately, and as the night got colder, you could see cracks forming, and we were there, actually we were there all night into the early morning, and as it began to warm up in the morning, you could see these cracks proper, propagate. They'd get larger. So you have to be careful with windshields and keep in mind the type of glass you're dealing with. But if you're talking about float glass uh, that is untempered, yeah, look at the spider crack cracking. You've got radial fractures and you've got concentric fractures. And you know, tr trying not to complicate the matter, you can follow the cracks. They will tell you the sequence. And I think that's what I was really referring to in there in my limited knowledge about 
you know, windows cracking when they're getting shot. I think you brought something really great to the table in talking about the thermal, you know, cracking and everything, because that's probably something that you never hear on television. My God, you know, we are out of time. I could talk with you for days in regards to, uh, you know, ballistics and, and the wonderful science that you do. And uh, let's get you back on again and do another one of these, okay? You can twist my arm anytime, Doc. Hey, you know, you're listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli for forensic criminologist and firearms expert and ballistic scientist Lance Martini from our forensic death investigations team on a thread of evidence on America Out Loud.